1: I'm Kayla Benjamin, intern at Lawfare, with an episode of Rational Security for September 24th, 2023. For today's episode, the team at Lawfare decided to cross-post this week's episode of Rational Security, a podcast hosted by Scott R. Anderson, Quinto Jurassic, and Alan Rosenstein, in which they cover the week's big national security news stories. Today's episode is entitled, The Seraphine Edition. This week, Anderson and Jurassic sat down with Eric Tremela and Seraphine Danani to discuss President Biden and Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky's addresses to the U.N. General Assembly, Canada's allegation that the Indian government was involved in the assassination of a Sikh separatist leader and Canadian citizen on Canadian soil, the prisoner swap deal the Biden administration struck with Iran, and more. This is Rational
2: Security. Serafine, how's New
3: York? Oh, UNGA. We're going to talk about UNGA today, the UN General Assembly, but traffic has been wild. So oh, yeah. I took the M31 crosstown bus and we were stalled in the same spot for about 15, 20 minutes. So the bus driver was kind enough to open the door and let us all out, which is a big no-no in New York. And he was over it. We were over it. And that's been the state of New York these days. So if wow. you want to travel, travel underground, don't travel overground, on ground.
0: I feel like that's generally a good New York rule in the winter. Underground always feels like you're like, you know, stuck inside one of those creatures from Star Wars trying to huddle against the cold where it's always like very wet and hot and gross in its own way. But then if you go outside, it's always frigid wind tunnels just kinda shooting down between the buildings.
3: I think that's exactly what's happening in New York right now. Scott. That it hasn't changed.
0: Right? I think <laughs> <laughs> What's the name of that creature? Is it the I don't Jamba? remember. I don't the remember. Daffa? It's Daffa? in the second. I, movie. I think I'm thinking of Jimmy Hoffa. I'm missing it, but it's something like that. Uh, in that, in that family, in the second one, though. It is in the second one, correct? Are you in Manhattan? Or are you in Brooklyn?
3: I'm in Manhattan. I'm on the west side in Hell's Kitchen, so it's it's nice. It's in the action, but it's also a little bit tucked away. And speaking of wind tunnels, we're right in a very brutal wind tunnel. So right now it feels fine, but come November and. I'll be flying away. And I have been lifted off before. So the wind has really? picked me up. Yes, it's true. So I'll have to plan my commute accordingly.
0: Yeah, poke some holes in those, uh, in those uh, you know, bigger rain jackets. <laughs> don't get, don't let, don't let it, an don't get any tail effect going. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Alternatively,
2: you could just lift your arms up and see how far the wind could carry you. Yeah, yeah. I
3: mean, well, if, you live, I if your work it. is
0: downstream, that could actually work out for you. Well, I was teasing
3: Ben. I was like, I should get a segue like him and then decided that's probably a really bad idea. I wouldn't have any control over that with the wind.
2: I think you should go for it.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Rational Security. I am your returned regular co-host, Scott R. Anderson, here back in the host chair, which I have wrestled from the death grip of my other co-host, Quinta Jurassic, who kindly filled in for me last week.
2: We're glad to have you back.
0: Uh, and we have exiled our third co-host, Alan Rosenstein, back to the wilds of Minnesota for this week. But we are thrilled to be joined by not one, but two of our wonderful lawfare colleagues, Eric Charmella and Seraphine Danani. Eric, Seraphine, thank you guys both for joining us here today this week. Great to be here.
3: Thanks for having us.
0: And Seraphine, this is sadly might be your last rational security appearance, at least for a while, because this is your last week with us. Isn't that right?
3: That's right. And tell them what the episode title is today. I'm, I'm a fan. <laughs>
0: Oh good, well I'm glad, I'm glad you are because in your honor, we are calling it the Serafin edition. because uh, <laughs> at the end at the end of this episode, we will fade to black with a single card with just three simple letters across it. You, the listener won't understand or know what's happening, but we will,, uh, which is the important thing because this is this is Sarah uh last hurrah with us over the last from after spending the last year with us. birth Road, we're able to get you on rational security one more time.
3: I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me again, guys.
0: of course. Well, for the Seraphine edition, we have <laughs> two or three topics that have been percolating their way up the headlines and now security news this week that we want to talk about with you all and, of course, with you, the listeners. Topic one Unga Unga Party. President Biden and Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky made back to back addresses at the UN General Assembly, which is gathered in New York for its annual summit this week. What should we make of their statements? Might this be a turning point for the conflict in Ukraine? And if so, in which direction? Topic two, Etu Modi. Canada has leveled a serious allegation against the government of India that it was directly involved in the recent assassination of a Sikh separatist leader and Canadian citizen on Canadian soil. The accusation is one that promises to complicate recent efforts to bring India into the fold with the West, including those efforts being spearheaded by President Biden. What should we make of these accusations? Where do we think they will lead? And topic three, ransomware. The Biden administration has struck a deal with the government of Iran, exchanging several imprisoned Iranian nationals and $6 billion in frozen oil revenue for five U.S. nationals held by Iran and some of their spouses. Is this negotiating with terrorists, a new opening for Iran negotiations, or something else entirely? For our first topic, Quinta, let me hand it over to you to get us started.
2: So, UNGA has come to New York bringing uh, international diplomacy and traffic pileups, uh, there have obviously been a lot of speeches, but the two we're going to talk about today are two from President Biden and Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. So President Biden um, really led with the importance of supporting Ukraine and trying to kind of rally the international community around maintaining support to Ukraine, even as the war drags on and asking for solidarity against what he described as as Russia's aggression um, in a contest between democracy and autocracy that's a a quote from president biden zelensky meanwhile also um came out swinging demanding for consequences for russia demanding that russia be stopped in its efforts um warning of potential what he saw as potential russian efforts to use a dirty bomb, um, which I thought was pretty striking, or otherwise engage in shenanigans when it comes to nuclear material, Um, and also pitching the idea of a peace plan and some kind of effort to engage in negotiations along very different lines uh, than what Russia's backers have proposed. Um, So, Eric, let me start with you. Um, First off, Um, That was pretty high level, if there are any points that I'm missing in the overview there. And then second off, what you made of these two speeches.
1: Sure. So, you know, Zelensky's visit comes at a really pivotal moment uh, in the war. The the counteroffensive that began around June has been proceeding a lot more slowly than I think many, you know, observers had hoped uh, in an optimistic scenario. You know, there had been some sort of expectations at political levels of a dramatic breakthrough and a collapse in Russian lines that would allow the Ukrainians to sever the so-called land bridge between eastern Ukraine and Crimea and reach the Sea of Azov. Instead, you know, it's been a very long grinding uh, war of attrition. And, you know, the movement on the ground has been very, very slow, methodical. Again, the the counteroffensive is, is far from a failure, but it's been a lot slower than expected. So, You know, Zelensky and his advisors naturally are kind of concerned that, you know, without this dramatic breakthrough, global uh, support, you know, for Ukraine could be at risk, in particular, you know, American political support. And so that's the second part of this trip. You know, the speech at the UN was obviously directed to the world, but uh, he's coming to Washington tomorrow. And those are going to be some critical meetings that he's going to have uh, on the hill uh, with congressional leaders, because, you know, due to our own political shenanigans, shall we say, technical word, you know, this big supplemental budget for Ukraine to the tune of twenty four billion dollars um, of additional military aid is at risk. And so Zelensky's trying to shore up, you know, the American political support he needs to continue uh, fighting this existential war. And then sort of the final, you know, kind of reason for his visit, again, going back to the UN speech is really to rally support, like you mentioned, around his uh, peace plan. And there's been a series of diplomatic meetings, uh, one in Copenhagen, Denmark, and another in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia which has gathered a lot of you know, Ukraine's backers uh, in Europe and, and Asia, along with some of the more fence-sitting countries like Brazil, South Africa, India, even China attended the meeting in Jeddah to discuss kind of the principles of a just and lasting peace. And so Zelensky and Biden and Ukraine's other supporters are trying to widen the scope of the global coalition in support of, you know, again, fair principles for an eventual peace settlement rather than these kind of you know, fake negotiations over kind of capitulation, which some have been proposing, you know, whereby Ukraine just exchanged land for peace as if that could be done at a snap of a finger.
0: So, Eric, I want to put this in the context a little bit about what the dynamics of this is for Ukrainian leadership who are in the driver's seat in this very expressly. I mean, obviously, the United States, other actors have influence that can bear on the decision, frankly, probably have more influence than they are willing to acknowledge. They have externally, you know, the external line is always – we are deferring to the Ukrainians how they want to fight this war. But because Americans and other nations control assistance, control access to military technology and have back-channel communication with the Ukrainian leaders, I'm, I'm sure they have maybe a little more influence if they want to exercise it at least um, than uh, they openly acknowledge. That said, clearly Zelensky's kind of line is driving this. What is his space here for changing tack on this offensive? I mean a hard line on negotiations, on advancing and reclaiming Ukrainian territory has been a major key element of morale in Ukraine, uh, of kind of the Zelensky administration thus far. But this offensive is proving difficult. We've seen turnover in the defense ministry. The defense minister left. I think a number of other senior officials have been kind of turned over recently, presumably because of – the slow pr- the process of the counteroffensive. What is the dynamic within Ukraine around these different options? If there is pushback from their national community towards you know pushing towards 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 some sort of settlement, how much political space does Zelensky have to pursue it before he begins to run into domestic political problems or other political problems on the Ukrainian front?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so you know you mentioned the recent turnover in the defense ministry that that really didn't have anything to do with the counteroffensive. Actually, it was the result of uh, a series of corruption scandals in which the defense minister himself was not implicated, but you know he presided over the ministry, and clearly it had issues uh, related to you know excessive kind of costs of contracts for supplies for the military, and so it was time in Zelensky's view for kind of a re- revitalization of the leadership. Uh, in that ministry and sort of, uh, you know, it's so important that the Ukrainian public have trust in their institutions, in particular in the defense ministry, uh, given that they're in a war. Uh, And so that was sort of the timing there. You know, in terms of Zelensky's line and what's driving it, this isn't, you know, his line in the same way that kind of Putin's line is reflective of his own kind of personal imperial ambitions in Russia that are not necessarily – um, as widely shared in the Russian political elite, even though obviously, you know, Russians have gone along with the war and, and done little to oppose Putin. But in, in Ukraine's case, Zelensky is really reflecting an overwhelming popular consensus. I mean, you see polls uh, that are done regularly about Ukrainians' willingness to, you know, exchange um, territory for peace and, and, you know, legally recognize Russia's claims over um, the annexed uh, Oblast and Crimea and there's overwhelming opposition to that. And so, you know, Zelensky, again, doesn't have much space to maneuver on these kind of fundamental issues of territorial integrity and borders. You know, on the counteroffensive itself, it will culminate at some point, whether it's because of weather or, you know, that uh, the kind of rate of, you know, munitions expenditure can't be sustained at kind of an offensive pace and they need to go into more of a defensive crouch, whether or not they actually kind of announce that and it seems like a pivot or it just kind of tapers off into a new sort of unstable winter kind of lower intensity phase, I think is to be determined. And so, you know, again, the the kind of main thing here is the terms that Russia seems to be willing to negotiate over are still, you know, roughly kind of maximalist views, which is about, you know, Ukraine agreeing to give up 20 percent of its territory and, and agree to severe terms um, that would be imposed on, on a loser. And, you know, Ukraine is not anywhere near uh, wanting to have that conversation, understandably.
3: I also found interesting that in Biden's speech, he mentioned the need to perhaps expand the United Nations Security Council. And these are calls that I know Erdogan from Turkey and even Modi from India have suggested. It seems like he is motivated in part by Russia and its role in the UNSC and its veto power. Eric, do you have any thoughts on that? If you expand the UNSC to include more countries, does that somehow change the rules that one country can veto whatever policies the UNSC wants to install and thereby prevent the, the the UNSC from going forward with whatever they decide they want to do.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm all for modernizing and expanding the, the Security Council to reflect, you know, the current landscape of global power and make sure that it's more uh, equitably distributed. But the fundamental problem and the reason that the UN can't act uh in the way it's been designed to is the veto, like you mentioned. And so I haven't seen any real proposals whereby the Permanent Five would agree to, you know, give up their veto or limit its use um, or anything like that. And again, that's a that's not only a problem of Russia and China holding onto their veto. It's also the United States, you know, jealously guarding our veto. And and as far as I'm aware, we're opposed to any kind of proposals that would see our ability to wield the veto diminish. So until that issue gets sorted um, and broken through, it still seems like even an expanded security council, which is good for global governance, is not going to solve the fundamental issue of, you know, a member of the Permanent Five waging a war of aggression um, against its neighbor.
0: Well, But I do think there's an element of behind Biden's comments on this that actually is behind a lot of this speech that I thought was kind of interesting. And I'd be curious about your reaction to it, which is that, you know, we see Biden talk about security council reform. He talks about food crisis, food aid. He talks a lot about climate change, interestingly, talks about AIDS crisis. And the common element of these is that these are all kind of global commons issues that are particularly important, frankly, to Africa and the developing world. And UN Security Council reform is in a similar vein. It's actually kind of more important to a broader universe of states. But these are all countries that are – include many of the fence sitters that you noted of various stripes. Some aren't quite as fence city as others but they're usually somewhere in the middle band of the polls between a full Russia backer, a full US sanctions cooperator and they are people who have an influential number of votes in the United Nations and particularly in the General Assembly now um, where we have seen a lot of the formal resolution generation shift from the Security Council, which is more or less paralyzed by the uh, presence of Russia around Ukraine to the General Assembly. And frankly, that's even the case for the United States. It's made this case, the United for Peace formula, um, which had developed in the 1950s and has kind of resurrected recently, that the General Assembly resolutions might even in some cases be able to stand in for Security Council action as a legal matter. You know, it, this would be a, a, a theory that you would try and get buy-in from other states, but it might be a way you can use General Assembly resolutions to facilitate interstate cooperation on international legal action that otherwise states would say, well, you know, you need UN Security Council for this. And we've already seen some progress in this direction with sanctions. Like we've seen a lot more countries willing to sign on to sanctions that at this point do not have Security Council resolution sign off. Because of the broader national support related to Ukraine because of Russia's action. So New Zealand amended its domestic laws to be able to imply sanctions that are not UN Security Council-backed. Couldn't do that before this conflict. I believe Chile possibly is debating doing the same thing. A few other countries as well. I could have – it may not be Chile that I remember. I'm blank on the, on the other country I was thinking of. But the key point here is his speech really seemed to be speaking to the international community, to the General Assembly, not surprisingly because at the UN General Assembly, saying – Here's why we are concerned about these things you're concerned about more than Russia. Uh, He makes that comparison very expressly multiple times and that we can actually address and are taking steps to address these things and that Ukraine is tied into that. Ukraine is part of that. You can't ignore Ukraine and focus on these other things. We have to address Ukraine as part of this sort of formula. Eric, do you have a sense of like how – much that pitch is likely to change things or how receptive people might be? I mean, I don't think it's a new pitch. I think it's one that Biden is making more expressly at a higher platform than he's made before. But it is a – the evolved version of kind of the line that the Biden administration has been tacking back and forth along for the last year and a half, two years. Is there a reason to think this might be a breakthrough moment or is this kind of a – last showing of good faith by the Biden administration, not last, but a big show of good faith by the Biden administration to Zelensky and Ukraine supporters saying, we still got your back, but this isn't likely to lead to any change.
1: You know, I tend to think it's more the latter because, you know, even though Biden has made this pitch before, I think there's still a lot of skepticism. Uh, When I've talked to, you know, colleagues uh, from countries in the global south that have looked at the U.S. pitch on Ukraine and uh, you know, European support and all of that, and really seeing this as you know the West caring mostly about its own problems and ignoring the problems of the rest of the world. And again, even though there's a lot of you know lofty rhetoric that Biden's bringing to the table, I think a lot of these countries really want to see action on on core you know issues to them that are actually existential. Um, you know, in the case of climate change for for small island nations, you know in the case of you know famine and drought and and other you know disasters and and all of that so i you know i think if this if this pitch is going to go beyond a speech at the general assembly to really start to kind of shake up global coalitions and really kind of isolate russia and china as fundamentally different and pernicious actors there's going to have to be you know resources and real political will behind that and it's questionable to me whether whether that breakthrough has happened.
0: Well, and, and that enters into this question about what strategic role is this, is this playing maybe in dynamics with Ukraine, again, as the people in the driver's seat, right? I mean, I, I've always suspected, uh, although no one's ever said it expressly, that the counteroffensive was a major effort to say, we're going to do everything we can to back Ukraine this time up to a point. Because it's within the window in which the United States can solidly commit to providing bilateral support substantially through at least most of the counteroffensive now. We're beginning to hit the window where the initial kind of wave is beginning to wind down. But I think people suspect there would be enough political capital this time. We don't know if that's going to be the case in two more years. Without US leadership, maybe Europeans will be able to keep pulling stuff together but not at the scale of which Ukrainians have been receiving so far. So I kind of suspected this to say like this is a last push – before we have to shift fire to a different sort of approach or a different strategy on uh, one that's probably going to look more like a ceasefire. Simply because we don't politically know how stable the line of support to Ukrainians is. I think it's different if, if you have a 2024 election and Biden is reelected. Democrats come back in Congress or a you know, more moderate selection of Republicans is empowered in Congress. Um, but until we know that's the case, it seems like you have to be, hedge that risk pretty severely. Do you, does that seem right or wrong to you, Eric? And And does this fit into that? I mean could it in that if – Zelensky is going to be able to move in that direction towards a ceasefire. Anything he's going to need to look like he for domestic audiences, like he's kicking and screaming as he does that, and that entails saying we've done absolutely everything. The international community is not letting us do any more. Let's pull it along, and maybe this is feeding into that formula as much as it is signaling anything to the international community.
1: Yeah, I mean, I do think you're right that again, this is a pivot point. You know, whether the next phase looks something like a ceasefire or something more unstable, I think is you know, up in the air, I kind of, I see the war shifting in a a few ways over the next six to 12 months. You know, number one, with progress on the battlefield, uh, very, very slow, I think you're going to start to see more of these kind of spectacular attacks that Ukraine has been increasingly able to conduct inside Russia against Crimea. Uh, The new CNN report yesterday about potential Ukrainian special forces involvement in some uh, strikes on Wagner-affiliated militias in Sudan, again. Which is
2: wild. Which is wild.
1: But again, it shows kind of the risks of uh, expansion of the conflict when um, the fundamental issues can't be resolved on the battlefield in Ukraine. And so I think we're going to see probably more of that over the winter. Again, with the – not only to kind of keep Ukraine in the news and all of that. It's much more than PR. It's about um, Ukraine demonstrating an ability to hold – things that Russian care, Russia cares about at risk. Russian military assets, energy assets in inside Russia, and then their kind of forced projection overseas. So that's one thing. And I think that's kind of – it's not really going to look like a ceasefire. I mean it's kind of going to be this dangerous, unstable, maybe lower-intensity um, fight, but still with these occasional – you know, zigzags and moments of kind of more acute crisis that we're going to see going forward. In addition to the fact that Russia is certainly going to uh, step up its attacks on Ukrainian cities, um, you know, energy infrastructure, they've been striking a lot of grain infrastructure. And so, you know, we saw a really horrific campaign last winter to try and uh, turn the lights off in Ukraine. And I think the Russians are going to try that again. Hopefully, the Ukrainians this time have a lot more air defense assets where they can sort of neutralize those Russian threats. I think another way that the war is pivoting is that, like you said, Scott, you know, we kind of emptied the cupboards on um, supporting Ukraine for this counteroffensive and through almost everything we had at this effort. And, you know, it's not for political will reasons, but more for kind of logistical reasons. And, uh, you know, our ability to uh, kind of catch up and produce uh, what we need to produce to support another Ukrainian counteroffensive. These production lines that have been restarted and expanded it's going to take a few years to you know build up again the arsenal that uh ukraine might need for another offensive so i think we're settling into a more medium to long-term structure of uh support for ukrainian military sustainment and reconstitution and you have the declaration of long-term support that the g7 leaders and the eu signed at the margins uh, of the nato summit in vilnius now the united states and other signatories are negotiating these kind of specific concrete bilateral commitments um, the United States is most likely doing it in the form of a memorandum of understanding. some people have talked about the US Israel mous as a as a model for kind of sustained multi-year support. but the goal there is to really talk about Ukraine's you know future force requirements and United States and allies ability to resource those requirements in a much more predictable structured manner rather than these you know supplemental budgets that, have to be passed in a kind of crisis moment in the U.S. Congress. The question there is whether Congress is going to be willing to uh, sort of endorse um, this MOU and give it some sort of statutory heft that, you know, elements of the U.S. security relationship with Israel have, like qualitative military edge, which is, you know, written into U.S. law, and thereby kind of placing political guardrails in case there is a change of leadership in the White House and again recognizing that nothing can you know be a surefire guarantee that the next president if it's donald trump or someone else wouldn't try to do a 180 but at least there would be a bipartisan political statement about the enduring value to the u.s national security interests of supporting ukraine in this existential war and so i think we're going to see a lot more discussion about that um, in the coming months and then on the european side finally You know, really beginning a serious discussion about Ukraine's uh, process of accession to the European Union. And the European Council is scheduled to meet in December to decide whether to open up formal negotiations. The expectation is that they will make a positive decision and that will begin the the lengthy, complicated – you know, but ultimately, highly beneficial process of Ukraine aligning its laws with those of the EU and integrating into the EU single market and and all of that, and so that's kind of a long term security uh, arrangement of its own. It's not a guarantee like NATO. Um, we saw that you know NATO is not ready to take U- Ukraine in while it's at war, but this EU accession process, when you layer it in with with the multilateral security commitments and all of that, gets you to a place where you can maybe sustain kind of. This situation for the next several years um, without a new Ukrainian counteroffensive. And maybe that allows Ukraine to go back to a little bit more of a situation of normalcy, hold a round of elections, um, start to welcome some refugees back, start some reconstruction projects, so on and so forth.
0: Well, going from one international crisis in process to Another potential international crisis that is just in the offing. Let us shift our fire to our northern neighbor, Canada, that has found itself in the news once again in what has become, I think, kind of the latest of an interesting set of stories of the last few years where Canada has found itself in the middle of heated debates around a lot of international norms and treatments of foreign nationals by foreign governments in this case, the treatment of a Canadian national, I say, a Canadian individual, but somebody who's involved as a Sikh uh, separatist movement in India, was involved in leading a Sikh temple in in Canada and was killed uh, just a few weeks ago in Canada um, by individuals whom the Canadian government now is saying were agents of the government of India as part of a plot led and organized by the government of India. We don't know much of the details of these allegations. Um, We do know they're serious enough and are taken to be credible enough by the Canadian government that they have, A, gone public with them um, in a statement by President Trudeau nonetheless. um, That they have refused and rejected uh, assertions by Prime Minister Modi of India that – the Indian government was not involved. The Canadian government feels like they have enough evidence at this point to say firmly that that is not correct um, and to push back on that and to the point that I believe as of this morning, the Canadian government had officially PNG'd persona non grata at least one if not more uh, Indian diplomats from Canada, sending them home, whether that's because they were involved in this plot or whether this is just kind of a diplomatic retribution is unclear. That's not an unprecedented way to punish different countries, if you think they've done something wrong, you shrink their diplomatic representation, you send some people home. Um, but it's also something you do quite quickly if you do think somebody's involved in something nefarious because they have broad legal immunity uh, otherwise. And so it's your really your first remedy when you're dealing with foreign diplomats and agents. Taravine, I know you have been working and thinking and writing a lot about India, Indian politics, different aspects of it, not directly related here. But I want to come to you first. How credible do you see this sort of allegation? Do you have a sense from uh, some of the issues you've been looking at about how or why the Indian government might be willing to take such extreme actions regarding an individual uh, in this case who, who was involved in these kind of separatist efforts? but doesn't appear to have been, you know, a major figure, a major, you know, political leader uh, in India, any sort of threat to the Indian government in any sort of meaningful way, although perhaps I'm wrong about that. Does this seem like a plausible set of allegations to you? And if so, what's the logic behind them?
3: It seems like a plausible set of allegations to me, and it's because of the history and the general tension between India and Western countries that have large Sikh diasporas, particularly where We have Sikhs that are separatists and they're active in these movements. So this activism has its roots in India. In the 1970s and 1980s, Sikh separatists had bloody insurgencies and an effort to basically cede from India and establish their own state by the name of Khalistan. And it was going to take part of India and a little part of Pakistan, and it would be the state that the Sikhs would call their home. Uh, The Sikhs, uh, there were two Sikh separatists who were also behind the killing of Indira Gandhi, who was prime minister of India in the 70s and 80s. And so there is quite a bit of tension between the Sikh separatists in India and that the diaspora, the Sikh diaspora is quite active. Now the problem is that Prime Minister Modi has said many times to the Canadian government that someone like Hardeep Singh Najir, Najjar, Nijar excuse me who is the man who was killed is a troublemaker he's one of the principal activists who's spurring some of the separatist movements abroad and that he needs to be sent back to India to be prosecuted but in Canada a lot of these issues are seen as you know core free speech issues. And so the activism, where activism ends and it becomes separatism, it, I think that's a really gray area. And so I think there is an interest in the Modi government to go and crack down on some of this dissent, not just in his own country, which has been, has been an issue um, internationally. And I know that the Biden administration has stayed very quiet, but it's an issue in the diaspora. And the fact that now we're seeing the Indian government go after. Indians who are not in their countries, but are citizens of other nations, that is a a very different course and something that I think Trudeau is very concerned about and is right to call attention to.
1: I'm wondering, did the Indian government attempt to use any legal channels, you know, an indictment and, you know, a request for extradition or anything like that? Because this makes me think a little bit about the Um, Sort of tensions between the United States and Turkey several years back after the attempted coup in 2016 when the Turkish government felt like the United States was harboring um, the leader of a movement that they thought was behind the coup, Fethullah Gulen, who was a U.S. permanent resident. And the Turks used all manner of kind of legal instruments to try and secure his extradition, which ultimately the United States was not willing to sign off on. But again, moving to, you know, an assassination on foreign soil seems like an enormous escalation uh, if those channels haven't been exhausted. You know, obviously also a pure violation of international law.
3: Right. And I, I don't quote me on this, but I'm almost certain that they did use legal channels. And in a similar vein to what Carriet said during the Gulan issue, it was – look, we, don't, we need something more than this. We can't just take our Canadian citizen and give him to you because you're claiming that he's a separatist and he's causing trouble. And so I think a lot of Canada's issues with India's efforts to call back this man to India were probably seen as baseless.
1: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile,
0: we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot,
2: among the many things that jumps out to me about this is that, of course, as Eric, as you point out, you know, this problem of overseas governments having difficulties with dissidents, activists, whatever you want to call them, and reaching out and trying to get hold of people uh, legally or illegally, um, more often illegally, is not a new issue. But, of course, the I think the Turkey comparison is really telling because Turkey is— functionally an authoritarian state. Obviously, the other comparison here that springs to mind for me was the Jamal Khashoggi killing. Um, We also have seen a lot about what's now called transnational repression in terms of China essentially setting up sort of stations to spy on members of the Chinese diaspora in the United States and elsewhere. Those are not democracies. Um, or Turkey, if it is a democracy, is a democracy under an, an enormous amount of stress. India likes to trumpet itself as the world's largest democracy. And so, and Serafine, I mean, you've written uh, for for Lawfare and have have talked on Lawfare podcast about the sort of broader problem of the backsliding of Indian democracy under Modi and the BJP. I wonder how you see this as, as fitting into that story, because for me, it seemed like a uh, Potentially, really significant step in terms of democratic backsliding in India and the rise of the current Indian government as a sort of violent authoritarian power.
3: You know, what's interesting about that question is whenever there is any criticism of India's domestic policies or its backsliding, its democratic backsliding, Indians in India will often say, America the west you need to mind your own business you have your own issues you need to air your own own laundry in public if you'd like but don't drag us into this and so that's that's always been their defense and i don't know how credible it is now given that this is an issue that is not that hasn't happened within india it's an issue that's happened on canadian soil and so to the extent that they tout themselves as the world's largest democracy this action, in and of itself, among others, but particularly this one, undercuts any sort of valence of democracy that they suggest. And I also think it highlights another issue that doesn't receive enough attention, but I think is probably at the center of all of this, which is the Indian diaspora and the power that they have in this entire political diplomacy arena. When it comes to Modi, you have Indian Sikhs in in, in Canada who I think. That's the largest group of Sikhs in any country outside of India. Oh, wow. And there's there's a reason why Trudeau is coming down hard on this, because unlike Indians in the United States, perhaps, who have been a part of the fabric of this country, but not in the very, perhaps, visible way or in a way that has been historic uh, in Canada, Indian Sikhs and Indians have been a part of the fabric forever. I think back to the 19th century, you had Sikh immigrants coming in. Uh, many of them were former generals in the British Army. And so there's a storied history of Indian Sikhs uh, making up the fabric of Indian society, of being parliamentary members, of being activists, of being you know, doctors and neighbors and what have you. And so Trudeau really has an interest here to make sure that he's defending that population and their interests. And then the other side of the diaspora, many who, there are many in that diaspora who support Prime Minister Modi. A lot of them are in the United States. And a lot of them, no, though not all of them, are of Gujarati descent. And in the United States, of the Indian population, 20% are Gujarati. In India, uh, 6% of Gujaratis make up the population. So there is quite a bit of Modi support in the United States. But that's not to say that just because in in the United States, there it seems to be an excitement over Modi that that's shared by the rest of the diaspora. And I think this tug of war between these two sides is going to probably play out among the leaders as they negotiate, as they talk to Modi. And I think that's important. So Trudeau coming out and condemning India's role in this assassination is good because I think it gives Biden legs to stand on. He's made very clear that he does talk to Modi about human rights issues behind closed doors. He really doesn't want to do it publicly because he doesn't want to name and shame the country and isolate them when the United States and the West is trying to use India as a counterbalance to China. But this gives him some some, uh, credibility to go to India and say, look, Canada is a neighbor. This is our sibling. We can't isolate this country. You have to give in a little bit, and you have to take some sort of responsibility. And I think that might be an opening to rein India in. And if India decides it doesn't want to, then that's yet another indication that it doesn't really want to play with the West in a fair way. It continues to trade with Russia. It hasn't condemned the violence in Ukraine. It hasn't condemned uh, Russia's war in Ukraine. And so there's a question now of, if India does not take some sort of responsibility or rein itself in, is this relationship the kind where the United States will focus on the issue with of China with India and that be the way that that be the the major issue and everything else kind of isn't part of the relationship? Uh, and I think that's probably. Something that the Biden administration needs to think about, maybe it's the China issue that brings the two countries together and not necessarily these larger democratic values that seem to be one sided.
0: Yeah. you know, I think I think you've articulated well the difficult position this puts the Biden administration in because it's our two competing interests, right? Um, and look, American history, the, much of the 20th century, the United States did not have much of a problem with allying itself with lots of governments that didn't really represent democratic values. Um, and I think there's a, con- a concern, a reasonable concern that there will be a lot of global systemic pressure uh, and strategic pressures that push the United States back in that direction as we become more concerned with near-peer conflict with – Russia and particularly with China um, because there are lots of states we want to have in our corner on a variety of issues, but they don't always play fair in this. Where I think this maybe though is complicated a little more is that it really feeds into a broader trend of behavior that's a really big problem for the United States, um, which is not just the Khashoggi killing, although I do think that's part of it, not just uh, debates over, you know, weird wonky efforts to capture Gulenis uh, with Mike Flynn and the sort of people and take them out of the country. Again, my favorite B-roll from the Mueller report, if anybody uh, recalls that from back in the day. But it also ties into things like we've seen about Chinese police station throughout the United States and with Europe, more in Europe than the United States, frankly, where they are trying to intimidate their expatriate populations. Uh, we've also seen kind of the flip side of it with uh, the Michael Kovrig case and the Michael, I can't remember the name, last name of the other Spirov. Michael case. Spirov, thank you. Um, where on kind of the flip side, and that's something we're going to talk about in our next issue, we saw the Chinese government Hold two people essentially hostage for three years to use as to pressure the Canadian government to, you know, restrain their own legal proceedings uh, along with the United States against a major, you know, Chinese national and something that they wanted to back, and it is the use of these techniques, these strategies that frankly, for a long time, I think a lot of people thought had become kind of anathema to the international community. They are clearly an unlawful international law, but it was just something that states thought weren't really willing to cross these lines as openly. And we've seen a breakdown of those norms the last few years, whether it's Russia trying to assassinate a variety of former you know, defectors and uh, informants and former associates uh, through the UK, through parts of Europe. That was kind of the tip of the spear, but it's become much broader. Um, and it is always going to be a tension, particularly between – Strong governments with strong nationalist identity that don't have a commitment to liberal democratic values and then countries composed of immigrant populations like Canada and the United States where we have a lot of expatriate communities in our countries and we have strong democratic values uh, and liberalism values and you have – you are allowed, allow people to say and do things that other governments don't like and wouldn't be permitted within the scope of their country and they frame it as interfering in their internal affairs and the United States and Canada frame it as this is free speech and also something allowed by human rights obligations. You know, I think the United States and Canada clearly has the right of the legal argument, of the principled argument but you also have to back it up with strong diplomatic action and policy action or else it's not going to mean that much and these countries will continue to push against this sort of envelope. And you know, if you're going to establish a norm against that sort of behavior, you you, you can't pick and choose too much. Um, and I think that makes this even harder a case uh, beyond the democratic values because of that strategic significance.
1: Scott, how would you respond to the accusation from many of these countries that the United States did quite a bit to erode these norms um, in its prosecution of the war on terror?
0: You know that is a fair criticism, and look, I mean, in this case, for example, uh, Mr. Najjar like was a designated terrorist under India's terrorism regime, right? Like, that was the basis of legal action against him, as I understand it. I think he was accused of having been involved in, uh, I think, for he was attempted or actual assassination of someone in India. Uh, you know, and so there is building upon this precedent. It would be different if this person were clearly tied in a credible way to violent activity um and maybe that was a case here like right? maybe there was a strong case that extradition should have been pursued and if that's the case india could have lodged complaints about it um india could have done a variety of things taking it to the point where you're you know extrajudicially assassinating somebody is it's challenging Does the United States do that? It does. It does do it through a legal framework where it says, you know, by its own internal assessments and you can question the validity of those, it's targeting combatants. It's targeting people who have a nexus to actual hostile activity in what the United States views and many but not all other countries view as something – as an armed conflict. So there is a different set of rules there and that does complicate this. But I don't – think there's much of a factual basis to say that the stuff sort of things Mr. Najjar was involved in rise to the level of an armed conflict. Um, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there are more facts there and India can bring those forward if it wants to and it wants to make the public case for that. But we haven't seen that yet. Um, so, I, But I do think there's a fair criticism there, particularly when you start thinking about you know, kidnapping, terrorism, suspect, things that happened shortly after 9-11. That's also a good reason why my, maybe the United States should be a little honest with some of its bad conduct and own up to it. And start to say, we – while we may have done some of these things in the past, we don't anymore. We understand they're a problem uh, and we need to start recognizing and respecting some of these norms around this sort of behavior going back to more conventional channels. And I think that's – there. that has been the trajectory of – Every administration, really, even the second half of the Bush administration, after those first couple of years after 9-11. And so I, th- I think you've got a, some credibility in moving that direction now. But you're right; that's that's a chink in the armor uh, for making those sorts of arguments.
1: Yeah, and the other obvious difference is, you know, when we've done this in places like you know Libya or wherever, um, the understanding was that the country didn't have a functioning judicial system to be able to, you know, prosecute this person, and you know Canada does, uh, and the United States does. And so that is a meaningful difference that people should also bear in mind. That you know, if a, if a foreign government is able to bring evidence that holds up in a U.S. court um, to bear, then there is a legal remedy in our court system that would you know again avoid having to go down these kind of extreme paths that we may have had to take in you know cases where there was a, a known designated terrorist operating in Libya against U.S. interests.
2: Speaking of tricky diplomacy and rogue international actors, uh, the U.S. and Iran have engaged in some hostage diplomacy. Um, So the Biden administration agreed uh, with Iran to hand over um, some imprisoned Iranian nationals and a hefty chunk of change um, in exchange for Iran releasing five Americans, I believe, and along with their spouses as well. Um, one of whom, uh, C. Mcnamazi, I believe has been held since 2015 or 2016. Um, so this is a very big day for the many, many people who have been working to get those folks home. The downside, of course, is that uh, it leads us to the question that we always end up touching on when we engage in these kinds of hostage exchanges, just as uh, we did with uh, Brittany Greiner, for example, um, is this encouraging bad actors, particularly, I think, Iran has been really dialing up this tactic um, in recent years. And so, Scott, what's your take on this? Um, or is this, you know, yet another example of the U.S. going down a bad road and negotiating with terrorists, so to speak, or is this something that needed to be done?
0: It's a really, really hard policy calculus. But, you know, net, I frankly—and and this has frankly been the trajectory of U.S. government policy for the last three administrations, at least, has been towards accepting that, you can't leave your U.S. national strandled overseas. You need to take steps to try and get them free. Uh, and it's been actually a real focus of – Particularly, the actually the Trump administration, Robert O'Brien, who ended as national security a national security advisor for the administration, had previously been kind of the lead envoy for these kind of uh, hostage affairs, um, and it's continued to be a major focus of the Biden administration. And I think that's actually a good policy trajectory, and the Obama administration took it very seriously as well. It is it, that is in part reflects the fact this has become a more common trend, um, but I don't think it's so easy to say that you know this is a supply and demand sort of relationship because we are beginning to. Pay these hostages or meet these demands. That it is a result of that. I think it's it's more complex than that in ways we can get into. In this particular case, uh, you know, you are exchanging a number of Iranian nationals who are, were suspected of different sorts of crimes related to um, the regime who were who were captured here to Iran for these five individuals, seven individuals really because I think it's five U.S. nationals and two of their spouses who had been under similar conditions or at least allowed to leave the country with them. Uh, and then $6 billion, it's worth noting, uh, uh, Brett McGurk, who was involved in this as the senior director for National Security Council at the National Security Council for Middle East and African Affairs has been involved in a lot of these hostage negotiations with Iran. Um, he really laid this out very carefully in an interview with Jason Rezaian, which I encourage folks to read. Um, the $6 billion is not a just a blank check for $6 billion. This is money that had been in an account in South Korea that was Designated for use for certain humanitarian purposes that are allowed, permitted under existing sanctions regimes that for – I wasn't clear exactly what this is because it didn't get into the interview. But there had been some technical obstacle to Iran actually being able to spend that money. and So this essentially moved that money from South Korea to a different fund where it can be used for the same purposes. So it liberates the money. It gives money – to Iran more money that's available for purposes that are consistent with sanctions like medicine, food, essential medical imports, things like that, that are allowed under sanctions regimes and allows Iran to use this money that it couldn't access before but only for those purposes. Um, that said, you know there's a criticism to be made here, right? Like the fundamental logic of U.S. sanctions policy against terrorism, uh, articulated in Holder v. Humanitarian Law Project most clearly is that this is all fungible. So if you give a terrorist group a dollar for uh, or what you call a terrorist group a dollar for you know medicine, you're just liberating a dollar they're going to spend on terrorism somewhere else right so there there is a there is a a, a, a basis for criticizing these sorts of things and it's not like we can pretend this doesn't somehow might improve the operational capacity or provide more resources for Iran to spend on nefarious activities all that said it's hard to say you have US nationals overseas that are in terrible conditions and not do anything about them. And I think trying to negotiate these things is important. In the end, these are pretty small giveaways. Um, I think actually the bigger giveaway, in a way, is the fact that you have Iranian nationals who uh, committed crimes back in the Iranian regime kind of walking free at this point. And it suggests that. There might be – you know, whatever deterrent effect you think criminal prosecution has might be a little diminished by this. But I think that's probably around the margins. I don't think the $6 billion is going to make a huge amount of difference. I don't think that you uh, lose that much from not being able to prosecute these five Iranians and you get these US nationals back. The real problem here is that this this is going to keep happening. It's going to keep happening, frankly, because Americans keep – Putting themselves in positions and and vulnerable to these regimes, you can't one hundred percent avoid that. But I think it, as I've argued on this podcast before, I, I think there is a supply problem here. The United States, I think, it would be very valid and should consider taking steps to limit the ability of Americans to travel to these places more harshly, because inevitably you're going to end up in these situations, and you can't. We don't. I don't think I don't want to live in America that's going to walk back from its U.S. nationals and actually trying to help them when they're in these sorts of this sort of situation. But that doesn't mean you have to let Americans as readily put themselves in the situation in the first place. So I do think there's an argument there in terms of a policy response. And there's another dynamic, although I won't let some other folks get in here, about how this plays into the U.S.-Iran relationship that has gotten some press. I do think it's something worth exploring. Um, But first, let me open the floor to other folks who might have thoughts.
1: I mean, following up on that point, Scott, I do think it's especially challenging when you have, you know, American citizens, uh, you know, who are dual passport holders and, Again, the ability to limit their travel to the country of, you know, that they have their other passport, I think is, is very challenging. Again, you know, it's probably easier to kind of message, a uh, definitely do not travel, you know, sort of policy to places like Iran and North Korea. But then you get into more challenging cases like Russia, where a lot of Americans are still going and, you know, they're engaging in this kind of hostage behavior. China as well. You know, where there's, as far as I understand, a lot of you know increasing kind of intimidation of American citizens um, you know who are visiting China, and again, to really enforce a policy like that, I think would be would be extremely difficult.
0: You know, it definitely would, but it, but it's worth noting there there are actually cases where the United States has done that. Uh, like North Korea is a case where there's really really stringent restrictions. Not many dual passport holders. That's a fair point. Um, but there are various efforts to prevent people who have multiple passports, even with other countries that are allowed to travel North Korea, to limit their ability to do that. It requires a lot of effort, but it's it's doable.
3: And on this point. What I also found interesting, and I welcome everyone's thoughts because I wasn't able to find the answer. It seems like two people who were released want to return back to Iran, and I don't know what is causing them to want to go back. It might be famil- familial reasons or otherwise, but the optics don't look very good. Is Do we know any information about why they would want to return to Iran after being released?
1: I think that was two of the Iranian prisoners that were released from the U.S. that were willing to I go see. back. They
3: weren't the ones...
1: Right, not I not see. the Iranian-Americans okay. who were released from Iran. So I think that was also part of the complication of the negotiation and why it took so long, because Iran wanted assurances that its prisoners that were released from the United States, who, as Scott mentioned, you know were implicated in actual crimes versus these invented uh, crimes that the Iranian regime had come up with um, against the American citizens. The Iranians wanted the Iranian citizens to come back because the PR – look of the United States government releasing these Iranian prisoners and then them deciding to stay in the United States would be obviously bad for the regime in Tehran. Uh, so two decided to go back, like you said, and I think a couple maybe relocated to third countries, and that was sort of part of the deal. But um, you know, I have a few friends who've been involved in these kind of hostage negotiations with Iran now for several years, and that, that was a really key sticking point uh,
0: that drew it out. Interesting. I don't know if I realized that. That's really interesting.
3: The deal is also really significant, I think, because, Scott, you mentioned that these assets came from South Korea, and then they made their way to the Swiss Central Bank, and then Switzerland was the one that wired the money over to Iran. And the US sanctions are so robust that it's very difficult and almost impossible to circumvent US sanctions and send money directly to Iran, hence the South Korea to Switzerland to Iran. And then there's commentary on both sides saying that this could be looked at as a really good thing or a really bad thing. Uh, the good way to look at this is this is opening Iran up to the international banking system in a more like genuine and legitimate way because Iran does go behind closed doors and engage in these activities as it is. And that might whet their appetite to continue this kind of engagement. But Relatedly, if it wants to continue this kind of engagement, we might end up seeing more instances where it continues to take hostages, continues to negotiate with countries like the United States to what Republicans refer to as ransom, but continue to get some money whenever they have less of it. And as inflation rises, it is not out of the realm of possibility that this will continue to be a tactic that's being used. And it seems like this could be a precedent that's being set where we now have a way to circumvent U.S. US sanctions when it has to do with um, a country's hostages. So something to maybe bear in mind as well when we think about Iran and its engagement in the world. It could be a double-edged sword. And with Iran, we never know which side of the sword is being poked at.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I would be really surprised if this is a transfer that happened in a way that was you know, more – no less consistent with U.S. sanctions requirements than – you know, as much as these banks are already compliant with them, which is like probably ninety percent, but not one hundred percent, for simple reason, You know, the U- U.S. government probably just issued a license that permitted this transfer. So I don't know if it, if it if it creates a huge new kind of legal avenue. There might be a, a socialization, a uh, kind of like acculturation aspect of this. Um,
3: and I, I think that's what I meant. Yeah, yeah. not necessarily legal, but yes, yeah, social and um, a yeah, comfort with this kind of transaction.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't – I'm not too worried about, about that necessarily, um, especially also because I, I don't think – my understanding is that these funds are still being held in a account. A I thought still in Switzerland – was in Qatar where they were going to be used for designated purposes. There's a degree of supervision still. So it's not a um, kind of a, just a, a cash-out situation where they're transferred in. It's, it's kind of under a sort of monitored environment. That's the way certainly that, that – uh, Brett was describing it in his, his overview of kind of the arrangement. And so it, regardless though, I mean I, I think the point is, is, is true. You know, The criticism that comes through is that, look, you're, you're just kicking the doors open for Iran to do this again. You're providing relief that they need and that's contrary to the idea that we need to maximize pressure on Iran to achieve outcomes. Implicit is, is a criticism that that maximum pressure approach just may not be super well-conceived, right? But at the same time, this isn't like a huge carve-out from this. Again, this is money that – in theory, could have been spent on these purposes anyway. Is from oil revenue that that Iran did sell, and then the money that South Korea used to buy it was put into this account for the specialized purpose. So I don't think it's, you know, it's making a little more resource available to Iran, but it's 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 money that they hadn't been able to access, at least again the way Brett described it, because of a you know technical error, an it issue it is idiosyncratic to South Korea, not because it was inconsistent with the sanctions design. Now, generally, like there's a question to say. You know, is this a just a general good policy? Like, do we want to have maximum pressure on Iran? Is it worth it to have American compromised overseas to be able to maintain that maximum pressure? Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. I I, I tend to be fairly skeptical of that because I'm not sure what exactly maximum pressure has accomplished in the last few years. Uh, that we you know couldn't accomplish with a lot of other different ways. It has a lot of humanitarian costs. It's caused a lot of friction with European allies. I think there's a case be made saying maintain robust sanctions, but trying to pretend like every, every, you know, drop you can squeeze from the stone of Iran at this point, it often I think has a lot more collateral consequences than it's really worth it. And, and this – if you were to allow Americans to remain in, in prison overseas just to maintain whatever marginal impact this might have, I think that would be a real high collateral consequence. Um, so I'm not I'm not persuaded by that personally. Let me, let me take – let's take one step back before we, we shift off this issue and talk about the Iran U.S. relationship aspect of this, which has gotten a lot of play in the press around the discussion of this, which is the idea that uh, you know this is a step towards potentially a new avenue of communication between Iran and the United States, uh, a reopening of talks about nuclear issues was expressly referenced in a couple of new uh, news articles. The idea that this could open to a lot of discussion is part of a general thawing of the bilateral relationship. Eric, do you have any reaction to that? What are your thoughts about that?
1: Yeah, I think that's premature. I mean, my understanding is that um, you know the nuclear negotiations have been stalled for quite a long time. There's other, you know, pretty major outstanding issues. Um, you know, for example, the Iranians are still very angry over the you know, assassination U.S. assassination of Qassem Soleimani in in January of 2020. And that there's still, you know, Iranian, credible Iranian threats against U.S. officials that have to be dealt with um, as part of any kind of forward movement in the broader um, process. But I do think that this, this issue of hostages was kind of, you know, hived off from the broader discussion. And as the broader discussion stalled, you know, the Biden administration really still wanted to make progress on, on getting these Americans back home. And so, uh, you know, I wouldn't, pin too much hope. Obviously it's 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 possible that it could lead to the you know restarting of of some of these broader discussions, but my
0: understanding is that's it's still a long shot. Well folks, we are out of time for today, but this would not be rational security if we did not leave you with some object lessons to ponder over in the week to come. Quinta, what do you have for us this week?
2: I would like to recommend a book review. Um, I think it is always fun to read book reviews that just totally pan a book. But more interesting are the reviews that pan a book in an interesting way and I think actually dig into it and take it seriously and in doing so show its many shortcomings. Um, And so the book review that I would like to recommend is a review by Tyler Austin Harper in The Atlantic of a new book by one Richard Hanania called The Origins of Woke. If that name sounds familiar to you, it's probably because it turned out that this guy who was a Viciously racist commentator under a pseudonym on a number of blogs some years ago and has interest, uh, recently become a semi prominent public intellectual um, who has a book out. Um, and it turns out that the book is not very good. But uh, I thought that uh, Harper's review was really useful in kind of taking apart the ways that. There are connections between the the original blog posts and the book, which is important, not just because, you know, it's fun to read a mean review.
0: But it is. Although
2: it is. Uh, but because, no, I mean, this is a person who's been taken seriously by a number of commentators and has been given a number of very high-profile platforms, was trumpeted by the Substack leadership as, you know, one of their brave new voices. And so I think it's useful to remind ourselves what might be slipping through the door
1: um, following in the footsteps on mean reviews uh, i would i thought you were going to mention gary steingart's excellent oh that was also review great. in the guardian of walter isaacson's book on elon musk which he called an insight-free doorstop and then proceeded to <laughs> systematically uh, destroy utterly um,
2: i really
0: enjoyed reading that
2: one that was an incredible review also recommended <laughs> all right
0: that's uh, two good references on that one uh, or two good recommendations. Well, for my object lesson, I'm going to be honest. I'm coming off of a two-week-long trip. I say trip instead of vacation uh, because I was traveling with my toddler, meaning I did not sleep. I did not have time to read a book. uh, I did not have time to do anything really for the last two weeks except watch my toddler and sometimes do so on the beach or at amusement parks or other fun places uh, in a very fun way. But I have not gotten to digest as much content as even as I do during normal weeks um, back at home. But I have gotten to read a lot of children's books. And I did find a children's book I really liked. I found this in, we were in uh, Mendocino, California for a lovely wedding this past weekend. Mendocino's a lovely town. I'll throw a shout out to Mendocino as well for folks who want to check it out. Uh, it's absolutely gorgeous. We're going through a couple of very hip toy stores they have right downtown, curated, cool. And I found this amazing book called The Mushroom Fan Club by Elise Gravel uh, that I got for my son because uh, I'm a vegetarian. He's... It's de facto vegetarian. We'll see how he wants to be uh, when he grows up a little bit. But since I do all the cooking, um, we eat a lot of mushrooms. And I was like, let's get him excited about mushrooms. And I opened this book. It is the most, A, it has these charming, charming illustrations of mushrooms with eyes that are just adorable. Very careful illustrations of like hundreds of different types of mushrooms and is ludicrously informed about mushrooms. I've learned a ton about reading this book with my son about these things that we eat, you know, four or five times a week. Um, So uh, I'm going to shout out this book, at Least Gravel, the Mushroom Fan Club, I think it's phenomenal if you have a, uh, you know, amateur uh, – what do you call it? Mushroom collector. There's a word for this. I forget the word. The word. Mycologist. Amateur mycologist. I'll go with that. I, don't think I think there's a different word, but I'll go with that. Amateur mycologist at home. Uh, think about checking this book out. Seraphine.
3: In honor of my last rational security, I have two object lessons, so I'll break the rule today. Um, I recommend the BBC's two-part documentary called India, the Modi Question, if you're curious about what's happening in India and the rule of law in India that has eroded over time. Uh, It's a documentary that's produced by the BBC, and it's actually been banned by the BBC because Modi installed emergency law and decided that it was a national security threat. And then if you want to continue to feel demoralized, I recommend reading David Brooks' article in The Atlantic called How America Got Mean. And it's a very good look at the United States and what went wrong with our morality.
0: Mm. Well, on those notes, sadly, we are out of time for today. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare, so be sure to visit us at lawfaremedia.org for our show page with links to past episodes for our written work and the written work of other Lawfare contributors and for information on Lawfare's other podcast series. And be sure to follow us on Twitter or X at RATLsecurity and be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you might be listening. And while you're at it, sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon at patreon.com slash lawfare for an ad-free version of this podcast and other special benefits. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo, and music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. We were once again edited by the wonderful Jen Pachahal. On behalf of my co-host Quinta and our special guests, Eric and Seraphine. I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Until
3: then, goodbye.